This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic. That's Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine trial starting up again after participants involved got a neurological illness. That raises the big questions surrounding a vaccine and safety. While we all hope a vaccine's going to be safe, how are we supposed to know if developers aren't being transparent enough with their work? We'll get into some of the concerns if the whole process is being rushed and about the dangers involved. We will also explore how drug addiction can increase the risk for COVID infection and critical cases. More people starting to go out to eat. You can only make so many meals at home. But that comes with risk. We'll get into how much of a risk and uh, how you can stay safe. And malls, you know, shopping malls across the country starting to uh, open back up. What safety steps are they taking, though, to make sure they do not become super spreader locations? And uh, careful about how many paper towels you're using. Still hard to find them in some spots. We'll look into what's going on there. But let's get back to vaccines. Jonathan Kimmelman is a bioethicist and director of the Division of Ethics and Policy at McGill University. He studies clinical drug trials. Jonathan, is it typical to be shrouded in such a degree of secrecy? The answer is yes, it is typical, generally Sponsors hold that information pretty close to the chest until they get regulatory approval uh, for a product. So this is sort of par for the course in vaccine development. But, of course, we're dealing with a very unprecedented set of conditions here. Uh, Number one, we're dealing with a pandemic. So the stakes of transparency are extraordinarily high. And number two... Governments are investing in those vaccine products before they've actually demonstrated safety and efficacy. Uh, And number three, uh, many governments are actually co-funding some of those clinical trials. So I think there's a really strong case for pressing for a much higher standard of transparency than we would normally see in drug or vaccine development. So how much more should we be let in on? What kinds of things should we know along the way? Well, I think one key item that should be public is the clinical trial protocol and the statistical analysis plan. Now, I know for most listeners that sounds super technical, but when you design a trial, you have to run that according to exactly as you designed it. And it will be incredibly helpful for scientists and others to be able to look at how people have designed these clinical trials and how they're going to analyze their data. So that's one item that could be made public. I think the other issue is safety reports. Uh, The information about this AstraZeneca trial, uh, that information was not shared directly with the public. It was really only through some good shoe leather journalism that that really kind of came to light. And I think sponsors should be much more transparent and forthright about disclosing safety issues as they arise. Talking about how these trials are designed, here's one thing that puzzles me. I noticed over the weekend, I believe it was, the uh, the head of the uh, of Pfizer, which is one of the, the uh, three companies, I believe, that are now in what they call phase two, phase three uh, trials of their vaccines, is saying that, that he believes they will have results by the end of October. But these were designed, I think, all of them as two-year trials. How do you have a two-year trial and yet say that you think you may have results 
in October or by the end of October? I can't speak to that particular trial, but generally uh, when you run a clinical trial, you'll have one hypothesis that's your main hypothesis. It's called a primary outcome. And then you'll often have a bunch of other hypotheses that you want to monitor. Oftentimes, you can get the answer for your primary hypothesis, which is really the main aim of the study. You can get those results much sooner than the other ones. So, for example, if there's long-term follow-up of outcomes that take months to accrue, you might have to continue running the trial much longer than the time that you need just to collect that primary endpoint. I was reading something the other day about you know people's perceptions of vaccines, and it said there's more agreement on the importance of them than the safety of them. So how do you get the safety numbers up when you can get people to agree, yeah, you know, we need these things so we don't all get sick, but I just don't know if they're safe. Sure. So one thing you really want to try to foster is confidence in regulatory oversight systems. You want people to trust entities like the FDA when the FDA grants regulatory approval. And that's one of the reasons why transparency is so crucial If people can't peer behind the curtain and sort of make judgments about whether the FDA is doing its job properly, that's the kind of condition where you can foster distrust or doubt about vaccine safety. Well, how does it work? Uh, I mean, you're in Canada, right? Uh, How does it work there? Is it different than the process here where the FDA would presumably, if it's an early vaccine, would grant its use under some sort of emergency authority? How would it work elsewhere? The system in Canada is not too different than the United States system. Uh, I'm not sure whether there's actually uh, an emergency use authorization mechanism. I should know the answer to that. Uh, but, But generally speaking, the process for regulatory review and approval is similar in Canada as it is in the United States. There are a couple differences at the margins. Uh, and there's one other important difference, which is that at least for now in Canada, drug regulation is not anywhere near as politicized as it is in the United States. You don't have political parties taking you know, wax at our regulators the way they are in the United States right now. Jonathan Kimmelman, bioethicist, director of the Division of Ethics and Policy at McGill University. Doctors and scientists have found things like heart disease, high blood pressure, and obesity can increase the risk of death and hospitalization. Now, they found another comorbidity, drug addiction. Dr. Nora Volkoff directs the National Institute of Drug Abuse within the National Institutes of Health and is the lead author in a new study on drug addiction and COVID risks. Doctor, what'd you find? What the study showed was individuals with a substance use disorder, whether it was to legal drugs like uh, tobacco or alcohol or illicit ones like um, opioids, heroin or cocaine, are at much greater risk of becoming infected with COVID. And if they get infected, are at much greater risk of worse outcomes, such as hospitalization and death. And, and, the, and the effects are actually strongest for those that have an opioid use disorder. And that's addiction to drugs like heroin, prescription opioids, fentanyl. That's where you see the greatest risk of infection. Now, of course, as you know, I mean, the country right now, we we are in the in the grasps of an opioid uh, epidemic and have been way before the coronavirus pandemic uh, slammed into us. So this does not bode well. No, not at all. And we have not been able to control the fatalities associated from overdoses. In fact, in 2019, we had increases over 2018 
And now with COVID, with all of the stressors that it has uh, implicated for people and uh, a system that treats them and supports them actually have increased over 2019. And on top of this, when you have a substance use disorder, you're much more likely to have adverse health conditions like the one that you were just describing that put you at greater risk. You're more like more likely to have diabetes. You're more likely to have cardiac disease. More likely to have pulmonary disease, and in disruption of immune function, and all of them increase your risk uh, for adverse outcomes if you do get COVID. And then I guess it's just also the toll that some of these drugs can have on your body when it's just trying to, you know, make it through whatever you're addicted to. There's not much room left for for your immune system to be functioning normally. Correct. And on top of that, but there are also other social structural factors that also contribute. And so if you have a substance use disorder, you're much more likely to have a house instability, be homeless. You're much more likely to have be uh, incarcerated. You are much less likely to have a support system that actually helps you navigate uh, the challenges and uncertainties. You're much more likely to be isolated. And, and all of those factors increase the distress and the likelihood that you will, if you were in recovery, relapse, and that if you were taking drugs, that you increase the drug consumption. And, and this is what the data shows, that people are relapsing, that people are taking higher content of drugs, that people that didn't take drugs before are starting to take them. So uh, COVID is negatively affecting um, our mental health. Um, uh, including the use of drugs and addiction. And and to be really uh, clear about this for people listening, because I, you know, some people are probably thinking, well, I don't have an opioid addiction, so I'm okay. But but we're also talking about a greater risk of catching COVID and having a, a worse outcome if you do uh, catch COVID. Uh, if you are a cigarette smoker, if you drink a lot of alcohol, is that right? Correct. And that is the other side of it, that we have these legal drugs that are widely available. And we've seen a significant increase in alcohol consumption. And alcohol disrupts your immune function. And so therefore, no surprising, your risk of infection and adverse outcome is also increased by alcohol. And this is something that um, basically it's, it's a source. We all are trying to cope with COVID and we use different strategies. And one of the strategies that is used is to take alcohol, to drink alcohol, or to cigarette, smoke marijuana, or to smoke cigarettes, or to eat more. And those are unhealthy behaviors that, if you are not sensitive to them, can actually jeopardize your health. Dr. Nora Volkoff directs the National Institute of Drug Abuse within the National Institutes of Health. We talked about uh, that CDC study a few podcasts ago that found people who tested positive for the coronavirus were approximately twice as likely to have reported dining at a restaurant or going to a bar in the 14 days leading up to their diagnosis. But why? Let's hear directly from the study author. Dr. Kiva Fisher from the CDC talks to KCBS's Rebecca Corral about her work. So determining where people are being exposed to COVID-19 in a community can be very difficult. And we were trying to find ways to better characterize community exposures. So what we did was we um, went to our network of uh, hospitals, our academic centers across the United States where we had 11 different participating sites. And um, we collected information from people who tested positive for coronavirus and those who tested negative 
for coronavirus. And we asked them a number of different community questions to better understand what they might have done in the two weeks before they got sick. And you found an increased risk um, and, and, a cor- and a correlation. But uh, your study didn't ask if a person dined indoor or outdoor. Um, that, it, will that be important to follow up on, or is there a risk either way? So what we did was we were actually just asking individuals what they did the two weeks before they got sick. And what we wanted to know was, was there a difference between um, what people did if they tested positive and what people did if they tested negative. And what we found was that people who tested positive were two times more likely to have reported um, going to a restaurant. And it's true, when we were trying to understand this, because it was a preliminary study, we asked um, the question as both indoor and outdoor, just to better understand if people were doing this behavior at all. Okay, and so was there anything else that, that you gathered from this, aside from the restaurants, that people were more likely to be positive? Yeah, we actually found that um, both positive and negatives were not very likely to report having a known close contact with COVID-19. Um, and so what we wanted to do was restrict the, uh, the participants and the, the samples to be able to understand. So if you don't know where you're um, potentially acquiring, uh, if you don't know a, if, that you have a close contact, what is what are the differences there? So people with no known close contact, we also found an association with uh, bars and coffee shops. Oh, interesting. So um, previously, we've been warned um, that air circulation in indoor spaces and gatherings like restaurants could affect um, the transmission. Do you expect um, results for other indoor activities to be similar to restaurants, or is it different because you take off your mask in a restaurant? I think what our study really does is it provides a good reminder, and it really serves as an opportunity for us to be reminded and encouraged to take precautions when we are in places where it is difficult to wear. I think this is also a great space for us to remember that you can take precautions like checking a restaurant's um, prevention practices before you go, wearing a mask if you're not eating or drinking, and maintaining those six feet if you're standing in line, um, continuing to wash your hands really off, as often as possible and as appropriate, um, but also that there are options to support local businesses and restaurants by choosing, less, um, by choosing options such as pickup and delivery. And and one final question. Um, The study comes as most states are now allowing people to dine indoors again. Um, Now with your study from the CDC, do these studies influence directives from the CDC? Um, So CDC's COVID-19 recommendations for the public regarding restaurants have not changed. We are just um, conducting science to better understand and characterize different things. And as I said, These findings really highlight the importance of us taking precautions to protect ourselves, the people around us, and our communities. Thank you so much. Uh, That is Dr. Kiva Fisher. Malls are very popular hangout spots for people, but they closed throughout most of the country when the pandemic started. Well, now they are starting to open again and trying to open in Los Angeles County. One of the biggest indoor mall operators making its case directly to L.A.'s supervisors, arguing it's safe to go in and shop still. Supermarkets, other places are still open. Molly Unger is vice president of shopping center management at Westfield. So, Molly, uh, why should you guys be allowed to open back up? We 
have done so many things to create safe environments in our common areas. And we are constantly looking for the rate of admission as well. But when we look at the indoor malls, the amount of protections that we've put out there in our commercial environments for customer safety safety as our priority are numerous. So we feel very strongly that our environments are safer than even some of the things that are allowed to open today. Protections like what? Take me through the list. Yeah, so a few of them. You know, we have hand sanitizers at every entrance through the property, along with all the high-touch areas that you walk through the mall, so there's frequent opportunities to be cleaned. We've gone as far as having signage and queuing markers to allow traffic flow so that there's one-way traffic in tighter areas. We've got mall security that is policing both the use of masks and congregating. And for anyone who, you know, shows up and accidentally forgot their mask, we're handing those out to our guests as well. We've gone further into the sense of our bathrooms and sinks and urinals. We're only using every other to do social distancing, even in our restrooms. And we are doing central air filtration through all of our interior centers to go another step with our filter racks, ceiling edges. So more than ever, our malls are safe, clean, and they are ready for the public. Let's go back to one of the things you were talking about, which is the security of policing the use of masks. Because, uh, you know, look, there are a lot of communities that have, in some cases, fairly steep fines, allegedly, for people not wearing masks. And time and time again, we've had all kinds of people on this show, uh, police officials, uh, city council people. And when you ask them, how good is the enforcement, you kind of get answers like, well, you know, we don't want to really, you know, punish people. We just kind of advise them. And and for the most part, they don't give out fines. Uh, What is the track record of your organization in the malls that are currently open in terms of really strictly enforcing the use of masks for the people inside the malls? You have been on a good track record. And for even just the interior malls that were allowed to open for the, the you know short period in June and July that they could, as well as our exterior malls that are still operating open, we're seeing you know, 90 to 95% of our guests are actually wearing them on their own. And then our security teams in that constant reminder, sometimes it's someone who just isn't wearing it correctly And others, you know, it's that simple reminder that this is a private property and masks are required. Can you throw me out if I don't don't comply? We do so in a very customer service way versus a combative way. Yeah, uh, obviously. But let's say somebody is not playing along or they're trying to skirt the rules. I got a drink or I'm I'm eating something. And then they've been walking around an hour without the mask. Are they going to be kicked out of the mall? I think if it escalates, we would take those as a one, you know, one by one scenarios. But appropriately, if it is if it's putting others at risk, we would take those chances. But every customer situation and every interaction with a guest is, you know, unique in its own. What what is Los Angeles County telling you in terms of what metrics are they looking for for you to be able to open your your indoor malls in this county, in Los Angeles County? And that, you know, that's part of our concern um, that we've reached out to our Board of Supervisors is we don't, the lack of data and that transparency around the dialogue of what it's going to take to reopen isn't there. So we're not even quite sure what metric that is being held to. 
Molly Unger, Vice President of Shopping Center Management at Westfield, also the GM of the Westfield Topanga and the Village Shopping Malls in Woodland Hills. Molly, thanks. We did a lot of talking at the start of this whole pandemic about toilet paper. Remember that? <laughs> just, I just kind of laughed. We did a lot of talking. We We've did. done so much talking oh, during I, all this about everything. <laughs> but we talked we talked ourselves silly about toilet yes, paper. Yes, we did. You couldn't, you couldn't get toilet paper if your life depended on it. Remember that? You were texting people like, I got a line on toilet paper yeah. at the Ralph's two blocks away. Yeah, and then you... And then you would go and, you, and you'd get there and you'd stand on line outside the supermarket for like 25 minutes. You'd go inside. You'd race down the aisle where it said, you know, paper towels, toilet papers. You'd get there and there's God. no toilet paper. Mm-mm. Remember that? I beat you to it. Well, you know, um, not really by choice, though, but because people were hoarding it for all different reasons. That's why we were talking about it so much. And that led to empty store shelves and people like us scratching our heads. Now, it is still a challenge some places to find paper towels. So, should you stock up? Phil Lempert is founder of SupermarketGuru.com. He talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about paper towels and how even Halloween candy is going to be impacted by the pandemic. Two things. We're still hoarding them. We're still nervous about paper towels And number two is we want the brand that we want. So, for example, Bounty happens to be my brand. Um, When I see Bounty on the shelves, I buy, you know, an extra package if the store is allowing me. A lot of stores are still limiting it to one package. Um, So we're going to continue to see that. And one of the reasons... Early on in the pandemic, and I don't know if you did this, I did this. I went on Amazon and I bought whatever kind of toilet paper I could um, and, you know, got it delivered about three weeks later. And it turned out to be these tiny little rolls. The picture, you know, on Amazon didn't look like they were, you know, four inch rolls. They looked like they're normal size toilet paper. Um, And I got stuck with those. And the quality of them just wasn't there. So because of those kinds of experiences that I think a lot of people have had they when they see bounty when they see viva when they see whatever their favorite brand is they're still hoarding them so the manufacturers i mean is just because they're not able to ramp up production as quickly as they otherwise might be able to do i mean it seems like it takes a long time for them to just start making more Yes. Um, the problem is, and actually Walmart um, really instituted this practice called just-in-time um, probably about a decade ago. And the idea is that you didn't want to have a lot of stock sitting in the back room of a Walmart or of a supermarket. So manufacturing changed to, to calculate when that store is going to run out of paper. Um, so that reduced the cost of inventory, both for the manufacturer as well as for the retailer. So that's the system that's in place now. And frankly, whether it be food or, or toilet tissue or paper towels, that's one of the problems that we've got that the industry is now coping with and trying to change. Understanding that just-in-time did have some economies of scale when there's a pandemic, whether there's another problem and so on, we just don't have enough quantity. So that's why you're also seeing major brands like Progresso Soup, like Campbell Soup, um, other companies, you know, decreasing the amount of products that they have so that they can really shore up their inventories if there is another wave of COVID-19 or if there's another problem or a hurricane or, or any other situation that we have that creates this hoarding mentality. And it would be easier if those manufacturers, producers, if they knew, hey, this is the new way of life, this is the new normal, but they don't necessarily want to completely change things only to six months or nine months from now, have everything go back to the normal demand. 
Francisco, you're 100% right. And also keep in mind, it's very expensive to change manufacturing procedures. So we're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars having to be invested to change back to the old system. And they are doing a wait-and-see procedure to see, you know, if the pandemic is over, uh, can we slightly build up inventories so we don't have a problem? A lot of supermarkets that have been built in the past years um, don't have the back rooms that the old ones did. So even if the manufacturers ramp up, it's going to have to sit in a warehouse. The question is, is it the manufacturer's warehouse? Is it the chain's warehouse? Because it's not going to be in the back room of a supermarket anymore. Let's talk about peeps. One of my best friends is a peeps addict, but there's not going to be any at Halloween. No, there's not. Um, you know, Peeps um, is addictive. There's no question about it. I'm, I'm one of those people, too, that love it. So, you know, the, the Halloween Peeps, which were pumpkins, ghosts, monsters, Christmas Peeps, those aren't going to return back to the stores till 2021, the company says. They're also going to skip the Valentine's Day Peeps next year. And it's because of exactly what we were just talking about, that they have limited production. They don't have they, they've been operating just in time. Um, so they just can't make enough. And they want to keep the regular peeps um, on the shelves, and especially the number one peep, which are the chick-shaped peeps. Uh, those for Easter, they've got to make sure that they have those because, you know, that's about two billion peeps a year. Wow. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people very unhappy about that, Phil. Hey, we, we get to be the bearers of very bad news for Halloween here. No, no. No peeps, no toilet paper, and no paper towels. Otherwise, we're fine. Other than that, yeah, other than that, everything's great. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Phil. We'll have you back again soon. Phil Lempert, founder of SupermarketGuru.com. More progress is being made in treating the virus. Drug company Eli Lilly says that adding an anti-inflammatory medicine to a drug already widely used for hospitalized COVID-19 patients shortens their time to recovery by an additional day. All study participants received remdesivir, which has already been shown to help virus patients. Those who were also given the pill Olumiant recovered one day sooner than those given remdesivir alone. Olumiant is used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Now you can find me shopping for toilet paper. Paper towels. Yeah, both.